Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. Today on New Books in African American Studies, I'm interviewing Dorothy Berry, Digital Collections Program Manager at Houghton Library, Harvard University. And so thank you so much, uh, Dorothy. How are you doing today? I am doing as well as can be expected. <laughs> Considering uh, y'all who are not hip to the day that we're recording, we're recording. It is four twenty-seven Thursday, January seventh of twenty twenty-one, and we are a day removed from. I don't know if you want to call it a coup. I don't know what you want to call it, but some wild happened on the Capitol. You know the, uh, and so uh, wild rabid uh, white supremacists. Uh, you know, we're, we're going ham in, in the Capitol uh, without much resistance from uh, the, the, the law enforcement entities at large. So uh, we're, 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 still, we're still working. We're still doing our thing and uh, trying to bring some levity to, to both parties here. And you, on the other end, that's listening to this whenever you're getting this. And so I just want to say thank you, uh, Dorothy, for taking the time out of your schedule to, to chat with me about all of the cool shit that you do. <laughs> Well, thank you. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't feel very cool while you're doing it, so it's good to hear that that's how it's perceived on the outside. Look, look, as a as a graduate student, um, you know, doing their uh, dissertation prospectus and needing to lean on archivists even more than normal, right, to do things because the the in-person nature of the archival experience, at least for me, I don't know about anyone else, but I don't know about 2021. Um, so I, I really, really appreciate, appreciate. Um, you know, archivists who, who do the work. And so uh, for, from Adam Xavier McNeil, Rutgers University, to you, uh, uh, Dorothy up there in uh, Massachusetts, thank you for all you do. Um, and thank you for doing all the research, because without you, we wouldn't have anything to do. You know, it's all the work is done for the people doing the research. So indeed. Indeed. So um, once again, thank you for uh, taking the time to chat with me really about your experiences as a uh, as an archivist. Um, And so for those that do not know your background, can you inform folks about ultimately why you chose to go down the archivist path? And in addition, can you describe what your current job is at Houghton Library as well? Sure. So um my background academically is an interesting path to being an archivist now. I went after high school to Mills College in Oakland, California, where I was studying uh, vocal performance, focusing on new and experimental music. And at the same time, I had my student job at the library. I loved working with um, our music collections uh, specifically, so that Mills is a really innovative 20th century, 21st century music school. So all the music scores were different than you might see at a regular place. We had, you know, two foot, three foot long Stockhausen scores and John Cage scores with tons of little transparencies. And I was really interested in that work. And I thought maybe I would be a music historian 
or a music librarian. Um, and then towards the end of my undergrad, I got really interested in African-American uh, musical theater, popular music in the 19th and early 20th century and decided to go to grad school for ethnomusicology. Um, and I got into the fantastic program at Indiana where they also offer a dual master's program. So I did library school and archives and uh, music school at the same time and really saw that my interests were leaning towards doing this historical work, focusing on African-American history, and also sort of folk really interested in the digital accessibility portion um, because I didn't have access to travel to New York to look at the archives at the Billy Rose Library, New York Public Library, but I could look online, you know, and seeing how much research could be done if these resources are provided really inspired me to continue into the type of work I do today. So currently I am the first ever uh, digital collections program manager at Houghton, which is Harvard's biggest rare books and manuscripts library. And my job is managing pretty much everything related to digitization and digital research at Houghton. So I manage uh, patron digitization, uh, a fantastic colleague who I manage who does a lot of that hands-on work with patrons for sort of over-the-counter work. And then I also manage any of our larger projects and projects that might um, intersect with people's digital scholarship and digital humanities research. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. And so, you know, y'all, if you if you, if you see anything at Houghton, you know, we'll be talking about some 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 dope things that that uh, Dorothy and her colleagues are doing over there. But hey, hit her email and you know her colleagues' email and and, and you know, got to do the work. And so, might as well you know chat with someone as awesome as as Dorothy is. And so, um, a- along with right, y'all just heard uh, Dorothy discuss you know her. F- her, her, her black first, right at at at, at Houghton, uh, but also we're in the midst of you know also someone like uh, really black political uh, strategists, black women political strategists like Stacey Abrams from Georgia, right, and so along with um, now Vice President Elect uh, Kamala Harris as well, and so you know really uh, Dorothy is leading the charge um, to really put more of African-American history online, which is so, so important. And so for you, Dorothy, what does it mean for you to be at the center of this particular process as a Black woman archivist working at the Houghton uh, specifically, and also in your just general field uh, as well? So I would say that a really important and key and has to be mentioned first benefit that I have working in archives as a black woman right now is the strength and fantastic work being done by black female, black femme, black male, um, all black archivists across the country. Uh, I'm constantly inspired by the work of my colleagues, um, especially my colleagues. I'm always most inspired by the colleagues who are doing work that I look at and think I could never do that. I have colleagues that do fantastic work with um, digital archives doing social media to capture all of, you know, amazing black memes and internet culture and colleagues that are doing really embedded community work that involves going above and beyond what you would think anyone's library job is to get connections and assistance to communities. So that's, I would not be able to do any of the things I do without those people both going before me and my ones currently who just are inspirational. Um, I would say 
doing this work, especially so I tend to focus on more historical work in the 19th and early 20th centuries, those periods, it is, mm-hmm. um, it can be very emotionally trying, um, both because you as a black person or as even I would say if you were a, a white or whoever else, if you knew about the eras, you know how important this material is but it's not what has been passed down as what's important of 19th century America. You know, when you think what's maybe Frederick Douglass, Phyllis Leetley, they'll give the, you'll, they'll give you that. But what's important mm-hmm. is, I don't know, Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson and Thoreau. And, you know, those are, and they're not to say that they're not important, but those get to be the big names. And so it's difficult when you have to feel like you need to prove that, you know, Richard Allen is an important figure, or you need to convince people that this Absalom Jones is not, uh, you know, a minor figure. Mm-hmm. And it's not even necessarily, at least in a lot of my experiences, that people are arguing against you, that they're saying these people don't matter. It's just that they don't know. And for any of us, at the end of the day, when you don't know something, unless you've really adapted a deep level of humility, if you don't know something and you know that you are a scholar or that you're smart, you kind of, your initial response is often like, well, it's probably not that important. Right. And, you know, that's, we're all guilty of that in some avenue of being like, well, I mean, I'm pretty much an expert. So if I didn't know that, maybe it's not a big deal. Um, but that can be trying. And even, you know, I do a lot of work with um, racially inflammatory material, which is often, there's often a lot of that in these institutional collections. And that's also a type of trying, you know, I think it can, it builds up over time. I do a lot of work around blackface minstrelsy collections. I've been doing work on those for years. Um, so I'm not immediately shocked by their extreme racism, but it piles up, you know, once you're dealing with mm-hmm. hundreds of records and you're seeing nobody has fixed them before and it you know, all starts to build up on you in a certain way. Um, which is why, especially I think about my colleague, Holly Smith, who's the archivist at Spelman, and she is always such a big proponent of taking care of yourself mm-hmm. when you do this work. Because much like black professors of all sorts, you know, black archivists and black librarians often end up having to take on that extra work or feeling like you have to take on that extra work because, you know, maybe black students aren't talking to anybody else but you. And you don't want to tell them, I'm not going to help you, black student. But also you were very, you know, you might have the time. And that's what I know. I hear that from faculty constantly. Um, and it's that sort of thing pile, can pile up too. But you've just got to find that support. And I'm really uh, blessed to have just tons of support from people. Amen to that. Because Lord knows not everyone necessarily has the same kind of support. Um, and, and oftentimes that can be the deciding factor about continuing in the profession, whatever, you know, the chosen profession is. Um, and, and so super duper glad that you found your, your network of support um, to, to continue the work that you're doing. And in the process, you're blessing so many people in the process, which is really what it's all about. Um, and so speaking of blessing people, you as I was researching for this conversation, found out that you used to work at UmberSearch, um, which is, for those who don't know, an amazing African-American history uh, digital resource for us all to go to. And I'll put it in the show notes. 
Um, and so once again, first of all, thank you so much because I love the database. It is phenomenal. Um, and so can you describe what your role was and how you helped grow the platform's archival reach? Sure. So Umbra Research is out of University of Minnesota, and I want to uh, give credit to Cecily Marcus, who is the Givens Collection of African-American Literature curator there. And this project is really something she developed um, and applied for the grant that eventually allowed me to work there for a couple of years. Um, so while I was at University of Minnesota working on Umbra Search, my job was to identify, redescribe, and digitize all of the African-American material at uh, University of Minnesota Special Collections that could be put publicly online, um, which mm. is a big task. So I managed maybe like six to 10 student undergrad student workers who were scanning all day long. <laughs> um, and wow. then finding the material. So they had initially had a list when they applied for the grant because of course you need to have a list to get a funding in the first place. But it was clear once we got there that a lot of that stuff wasn't um, going to be able to work because of maybe copyright and things like that. So mm -hmm. I had to kind of restart my search and found a wealth of materials once I started putting more boundaries on what how what are we describing as material related to African-American history. And that, I think, is an interesting thing that comes up with collections like this. And it also is reflective of my work at Houghton um, is that places might not have, you know, the things that you would immediately think of, like family papers or the collection of an amazing African-American social organization. But mm -hmm. Black history is everywhere. So it's a really a question of how are we finding this within other things? Like we found a great deal of um, letters within the Junior League's collections that referenced African-Americans. Sometimes they were maybe letters that were referencing charity work that certain Southern Junior Leagues were doing, or maybe they were about whether certain leagues were going to allow African-American women to join. And it's that sort of deep searching that revealed um, some of the things that I found really most compelling. And even beyond that, once you start doing the work, it plants that seed in everyone's mind and kind of, I think, allows everyone to dedicate some time to focusing. So a lot of mm -hmm. one of my favorite areas that we digitized actually was discovered by the curator of the social welfare archives at University of Minnesota, who was just like, oh, we've got this big collection of uh, candid photographs from USOs from our YWCA collection. And a lot of them have African-Americans in them. Mm -hmm. Do you want to add these? And I was like, of course. And she had one of her students, which was funny. She had a student kind of go through and look through every folder and just add a flag to a folder if there were photos of black people in that photo folder. <laughs> and that was probably at the end, though, like over a thousand photos, individual photos. Damn. And they're fantastic. It was from World War II, I want to say through Vietnam. So different eras. And there were so many candidates. It's USOs. So there's, you know, people doing arts and crafts, people hey, having family events. And some of those photos are, to me, still some of the most interesting pieces of, uh, you know, material history that I've seen. And they're also just fun because you get to see people's lives, you know. And so mm -hmm. that was really a lot of that time. And then there's the redescription work, um, which sometimes is work you need to do because previous um, catalogers and archivists didn't have the same eye towards inclusivity or towards representation. And a lot of times, maybe more often than not, it's actually just adding more information to really make clear how this is relevant to searchers. Because I think a lot of um, library history has 
had assumptions that either the researcher has a close connection with an archivist or librarian who's going to tell them things or that mm-hmm. the researcher knows enough to know why things are relevant. And I try to think, you know, just of an interested person who maybe doesn't have expertise yet. And so, for example, with that, when we digitized, um, so they have the YMCA archives at University of Minnesota. And the YMCA obviously did a lot of college outreach, and they did a lot of college outreach in the 19-teens and 1920s to HBCUs. And so I just made a list of all, I mean, I found on the internet, I think probably, a list of all the HBCUs, and I just searched to see if those individual ones were mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then I added in the description, though, you know, this is the, you know, this is the college manual for Grambling State, a historically black college university. I might know what Grambling is, and most people might, but if I'm an undergrad, maybe who's not from the South, maybe I don't. Right. And so I try to, that's a difficult, it's a difficult balance because you don't want to, you often, it's a difficult balance because you don't want to make things sound like you're talking down to people. And also, most of the time, excluding special jobs like the one I had at Minnesota, you just don't have the time to do that type of work. But mm-hmm. I think it's really, that's something that's really important to me is just sort of thinking, how do people search for things? And in my experience, people go to Google and you just type in whatever words you think are there and you expect to get the results. And our library catalogs are not as, uh, we don't have Google money, so they definitely don't have those same algorithms. But I try mm-hmm. to think of like, okay, Somebody's searching for this. What's a word they will know, even if they're not an expert? That is so amazing because, you know, when you just thought, when you just mentioned that, you know, about folks, you know, things are not always intuitive if you're not, you know, enmeshed in this as, as our life's work. Um, so, so I think about like going to another podcast, uh, Code Switch, you know, mm-hmm. they always talk about the explanatory comma, right? And so it's like the, the question of like, when to use it and when not to, um, so as not to make some people feel alienated and others, it's like, oh, uh, what are you doing? Um, and so I actually think that that's actually a very important uh, parallel to to what you j- just discussed. And, and at the end of the day, right, sometimes you're researching when you're really tired and you just need something that will be, you know, you, you might end up finding something that you never thought you would find, you know, just scrolling on the internet that's digitized and can save you so much you know, time and Lord knows, uh, time is of the essence in many different aspects of our lives, right? It's so true. And I mean, I know in my own research, I've had that experience where you are searching forever and you are just having to like dig page by page and you finally find one page that has like the sentence that proves the point you're making or has mm-hmm. that quote from the, you know, the primary source quote that says your theory. So no lo- so now you've got it all pulled together. <laughs> Especially when you're doing historical work, it's great to see the person in the past saying, like, I realized what I was doing was sort of a parody. And you're like, perfect. Great. I'm not making this up. He said it. Amen. But doing that work is so much easier if maybe somebody put in the names of people that are talking in this piece of paper. Look, you ain't said no lies because I remember... Um, so uh, offline, we were talking about um, Appalachia. And so I actually do work on um, Black Appalachians, specifically in and around the Great Smoky Mountains uh, National Park area. And so I remember I did some research at Western Carolina University Special Collections. And I remember, you know, mulling around, doing some, doing some, uh, doing some work, just talking to people about, you know, their... It's funny enough, this is at Walmart. I didn't do this deliberately, mm-hmm. but it just happened. People are like, uh, 
what you doing? What you doing out here? Dreadlock man, darker skin, <laughs> you know, you you know the you know the look, right? And so I remember doing research um around, you know, African American lives in the antebellum era, thinking about, you know, questions of slavery. And I remember people telling me, like, no, slavery wasn't happening around there, or it's not as, you know, at, not as important to the local economy as, you know, other areas of the antebellum South. And I'm just like, then first of all, why am I here? Clearly, the National Park Service is paying me for something. But then also, it got even worse once I go to the special collections and I'm looking for slavery, um, enslaved people, and also slavery materials. Um um uh, archi- archi- archival um data and you know it's not on the finding aid it's not in the metadata but once i go through some of the um collections like my physical you know hand touch them i'm realizing oh shit well if i was just a researcher who didn't live in the area for the summer and was coming in for a very short trip i might not have had the time to to do the necessary research to realize like, oh, this is incomplete. There's a whole, like the most important, like and wealthy enslavers in the entire region, west of Asheville, North Carolina, are in these papers. And yet, if you go on the internet and search, they're not there. Yeah. And like that, you know, historical silence is my God, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a very common situation and it's difficult because there are levels to which this, this inaccessibility happens, you know? There's a base level which archives are very poorly funded, and people don't necessarily have the time to do the deep work that they would like to do mm-hmm. to create that better access. And that is a like that's a home truth that needs to be said. We always need to say it because archivists are always worried when you talk about the stuff that it sounds like you're you know dogging your colleagues other places. But none of us have the time to do the work you really want to do. And even if you do have the time, you might not have the authority over prioritization. So you might mm-hmm. think what's important to me is making sure that we go back through all these finding aids and next to everybody who was a slave enslaver, we put enslaver so people know if they're doing the search. But that project might not be relevant to administrators or depending on where you're at, the administrators might think that that makes them look bad to the descendants who still give them money mm-hmm. and you know all that sort of thing. But it's really true. Once you get your hands on things locally or you get that different information, you can open up new worlds. That story you were just talking about, Appalachia, is very relevant to me because I'm from the Ozarks in Southwest Missouri, where that's the same narrative. You used to see on like um, the park park services websites about the national um, civil war grounds that are at uh, Wilson's Creek in Southwest Missouri that mm-hmm. slavery in Southwest Missouri was not as big a deal as it was in you know the Delta South. We didn't have big plantations. We most, and I think the phrasing was actually said, said something as sort of heinous as most people had a few slaves who lived and worked with them side by side like family. And, Mm-mm. you know, that's not how my experience, my family. And if we really want to get into it, if they work side by side like family, that's probably a darker story than you are telling on this website. Indeed. And I will say for me, I have had a lifelong sort of awareness of these historical silences, even though I definitely haven't had a lifelong knowledge of a term like that, because I grew up in that area where everyone was saying that slavery was just not part of our history, even though if you know anything about Missouri, Kansas history, I mean, slavery is kind of like definitively part of Missouri history. Um, 
because I grew up in the house that my great, great, great grandparents built in 1872 with land given to them by their former enslavers slash parent. Wow. And that's where my family's always lived. We have the deeds to that land. We have a slave cemetery in the backyard where everybody's buried. They have telling quilts that were made by my female ancestors. We have daguerreotypes, well, not daguerreotypes, but we have, you know, tin types of them when they were still enslaved and wedding photos from 1910. You know, my family is a, has been, especially on my dad's side, keepers. So I always had all this material. So when I got to school and kids were telling me, you know, that this stuff wasn't real, I was like, well, no, you sound dumb because I have these pictures at my dad's house. And so I've always had, that's a, you know, it's a very rare experience for an African-American family to have that type of material, especially, you know, uh, just like a farmer family. We're not actually, you know, in the 1870s, they were very rich, but that did not last. Let me tell you. Um, mm -hmm. So it's not some sort of like, you know, rich upper middle class freedman type family who maybe has more stuff. So I've always had that access, which I think probably has primed me to thinking when I'm working in archives that we, that material might be here, even if people are telling me it's not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's the thing. It's like, how many times as writers who have pitched a project, even, you know, dissertation, thesis, seminar paper, even, or, you know, for the creation of a project and gotten either resistance or outright like no's for the simple fact that they think that there's nothing there when almost the full, you know, scope of African-American history and, and black history, you know, it, it really history of the black world is a is is a interrogation of that question yeah. right and so you know that's why it's a great you know this is a great discussion which leads me to my next question um so you know you you know you did your amazing work at uh umber search and you know can you speak about whether or not you think uh your experience working at umber search helps you with your current project at harvard leading a team in, in digitizing and making discoverable thousands of materials for the online collection um, called Slavery, Abolition, Emancipation, and Freedom, Primary Sources from Houghton Library. I'm super duper interested to know your answer for this one. Yes, 100% it set me up to be able to be successful doing this year. So my job at Houghton is a generalist type position. Um, before we paused our work, we were, because the thing about some place like Houghton is, um, we have amazing, mind-blowing material in almost any subject area you can imagine. And so that's almost our difficulty is that some places it's like, this is our shining star collection, let's put it online. But at Houghton, it's the things we paused were also amazing projects. You know, we, we paused uh, digitizing all of Trotsky's correspondence from exile. Wow. That's, you know, that's nothing to sniff at. Uh, mm -mm. <laughs> um, but what I learned at University of Minnesota especially was both a lot of project management skills I always give uh, credit to Jason Roy, who was my manager there. He's their head of digital libraries. And he, any anytime I'm a professional, it's probably because of something I learned from Jason, because uh, he's great <laughs> at that. But just that sort of project management. And also what I learned there, of course, is that I found so much amazing, and with the assistance of others, always, uh, amazing material at University of Minnesota, which I don't think anybody really would think of as a place that has, if you didn't know, you wouldn't think of that as like a rich African-American collections holding place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's not how we think about Minneapolis necessarily, unless it was like contemporary material with all the refugee settlement and stuff. 
But right. I found like there was fantastic stuff in Minnesota, some of the best stuff I've ever seen, like those photos. And then other things that were, you know, equally unexpected, but were great, just hiding in these other collections. So I knew that a place like Houghton had to have mind-blowing things. So I came in with both sort of like an understanding of how to manage a project like this, um, which I got at University of Minnesota. And then I also had sort of, I guess I would say sort of like the ethereal support of seeing how much that project at Minnesota means to people in their research. And then thinking about how much that will be escalated if a place like Houghton that is, you know, very prestigious and probably feels very alienating to a lot of different people, or is just hard to get to, if that stuff can be opened up to people more, that's even more amazing to me. And to me, that project, right, and and I mentioned this offline, like, the fact that the article that publicized this came out on my birthday was like, okay, let's scrap everything. I know I got other interviews, but I got to get this because I don't know, Jesus, thank you. You're shining on my birthday. Another birthday present. Appreciate you on top of the 28th birthday. And so I, I read, I was like, oh shit. Like as someone who is doing dissertation prospectus research and then reading that like, okay, some of the rollout's going to be like summertime. So I'll actually be able to use it. Um, it's just like super duper dope because y'all already have like a colonial North America uh, digitized uh, collection already. And so to add in the specific, the specificity of right slavery, abolition, emancipation, freedom for primary sources, I'm like, okay, who is this person leading this project? And so that is how we got here today. Like for real. Yeah, I will say Colonial North America is such a fantastic project. And that that was before my time at Harvard, so I don't want to take any credit for it. But it's really great. And I'll say anyone who is doing research on um, African-Americans in early Republic, there is quite a lot of material in that collection already, which spans not just Houghton, but all of Harvard collections. Um, there's really just interesting stuff hiding, not hiding, but it just there's so much that it feels like it's hiding because it's thousands and thousands of pieces of material. Um but yeah, and I mean, I think the thing about something like a place like Houghton that I have an advantage in as a staff person is there's so much material that is on those shelves that would be so, it'd be in, almost impossible for you to find searching the catalog. But I can just go to the shelf, you know, the archives mm-hmm. and special collections like this don't have open browsing for a lot of reasons. But because of that, someone who is an expert can't go looking and then say, oh, actually this one next to it is the really important piece. But I can go to the shelves and just be like, oh, this whole row is very interesting and important. What's the first call number? What's the last one? Great. I'm going to do everything on this shelf. And there are definitely, you know, shelves in our stacks that I have just, they are empty right now because I pulled everything. Wow. Wow. See, 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 I'm gonna have to ask you a question once we get off this here live. He's like, <laughs> I got, I got, I got some, I got some research questions. I got, I got, I got some research questions. That's my job. <laughs> Don't worry about hey, it. hey, sounds good. Sounds good. So, um, so, so speaking of this project, right, it's, it's so amazing. So I'm super, super interested on this end too. Um, can you tell the audience how the project came to be and, and really what are some of your project's goals? Right. So it came to be, I had been slowly planning a much smaller iteration of something like this over the past couple of years because I had just noticed since I got to Houghton almost three years ago, um, 
that we just didn't have very rich African-American representation in our digital collections. And that's part, I mean, that's mainly because we don't have anyone on, we didn't have anyone on staff who was an African-Americanist. And because that paired with, like I said earlier, we have so much fantastic material that it's, you know, so you need to have somebody who's actually saying, I'm putting in the vote for this and I want to push at it. Because if not, it's, you know, we're not going to be digitizing something that's bad. We're going to be digitizing amazing things that are just not that. But that has meaning for me. So, of course, I pushed for it. And then this summer, um, you know, all universities and every institution were making responses to um, all of the unrest and police violence. Um, and like I like we've been talking about, I moved here to Cambridge from Minneapolis. And I lived, you know, the target that got set on fire was the target that I would go to. And, uh, you know, my best friends for, since childhood, weirdly, because we both grew up in the Ozarks and both ended up living in Minneapolis 20 years later, which is just wild. But you know, she lives in a neighborhood where the police precinct that was caught on for that was the police there. So she was on lockdown. You know, every night I'm hearing from my best friend that they're ha- she's having health problems because of all the tear gas and, you know, all this sort of stuff. So I was feeling very sort of ramped up <laughs> and respond like, you know, I had I, like I think like we all did. I was having a lot of feelings about all this stuff and then hearing from all universities statements that I didn't think were they felt like, you know band-aids or they felt like they really had to go through a million different communications departments. And I wanted to do something productive. And I also wanted to make a stand personally. Um, So I wrote up uh, sort of just a project prospectus. And I was like, here's what I think we should do. Here's why I think it would be good. This, I don't have any details in this one page because I'm going to wait for you guys to tell me that you approve it first before I do the extra work. But I was just like, I already have, because I had been doing that sort of light planning work, I already had a list of, I think, 700 materials from our collection. And I was like, I already have a list. If you give me the approval, we can get this going. And then the senior management people at Houghton, who are all um, very supportive of me, just generally, they're all always great to me. It really took some time to consider it, and they just went ahead with it. You know, the head of the library, Tom Hyrie, was saying to me that he was fine with the pause. It was necessary. Um, you know, if anybody had a problem with it, they could just talk to him. Nobody, luckily, nobody did have a problem with it because everybody, even if they weren't something they would have thought of on their own, I think people got on board um, once they heard it. And the goals to the second part of your question are to um, sort of kind of, that's what I think of it is my goal is to do as much as I can on this. So we have, <laughs> we're digitizing materials constantly. It's a little slower than it would normally be because since everybody is remote right now, you know, mm-hmm. digitization, our highest priority as a university needs to go to classrooms, you know, everybody's course reserves and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So we are doing as much as we can when we can. And we realize that we're not going to finish the project in a year. So like, you know, it's a year is the pause of everything. But when that year's over, it's not going to be like, okay, this is it, next next thing. We're just going to have to figure out how to reprioritize so other things can also be done. But because of that, I'm trying to get as much time in on this as I can right now. So we are digitizing the things. I have my group of amazing colleagues, Micah Hoggart, uh, Monique Lazier, and Christine Jacobson, who are on my local project team. And they are filling out this database that I've created um, for all of these materials. So actually changing the records for materials requires us to get catalogers on board and there are a lot of rules and I'm trying to be speedy and efficient. 
So Mm -hmm. instead of doing that, I made a database that we are at the end of the project going to upload um, to Dataverse, so that which is a Harvard sort of data repository, so that scholars can do computational research on this material. If that's the type of research they do. Basically, I'm trying to, my goal is to make it accessible to as many types of researchers as possible. So we have on one end, we want to have, uh, you know, as pretty as we can make it public facing website that's open to the public. You don't have to log in or anything that has all of the digitized materials. And that is what I'm thinking is for everybody. And then the other hand, we want to do as much as we can to provide access to this material as data. Mm. So there's both this database we're building where it's, you know, it's got fields for dates and publication locations and names, which at minimum will allow people to do sort of research on where things were getting published at what times. Um, And we have a sort of a controlled list of tags that we're constantly adding to. So, you know, if somebody wants to search this big corpus for things about the Fugitive Slave Act, then they can do that. Um, And then also I just applied at the end of this last semester to an internal grant that we're hoping, fingers crossed, will get um, approved. So then we can pay, instead of having me or Houghton staff writing the interpretive text for the website, we applied for that so we could get honorariums to pay um, our African-American and African studies uh, students at Harvard to give them honorariums to write the interpretive material themselves. Ooh, that is game changing. I told you y'all, I told y'all Dorothy <laughs> Berry was fire. I didn't I tell you. Didn't I and tell I'm you? I'm escalated on you right now because we also Ooh. in that same grant asked for some funding to pay um a local educational consultant and a dear friend of mine who's currently working with Boston Public School Systems to develop um an elementary school, I think, black studies curriculum to pay her wow. to write a like middle school age guide to using this type of digital collection. Next freaking level. Because I want it to be as accessible as possible. And I know that, I mean, I can do, I can, I and my other colleagues, we're smart people, you know, we can read enough things and try to do that. But the best case is always to try to get money to pay the actual people who are experts. Mm -hmm. So that's the real goal. And that same grant, which we're hoping for um, also would escalate that computational research ability. So it would have abilities for us to provide um, the actual images themselves for that type of computational research. This is that Dorothy Porter Wesley. This is that, that, that Carter G. Wilson kind of shit, like tradition kind of shit. This is next level. And to those who are listening, I hope that you're, you know, I hope that y'all getting ready. You know, folk at Harvard and everybody else getting ready for for some of these uh, records to come alive because, um, you know, this is actually perfect because I'm actually putting together a uh, for for the Hunto uh, uh, Early America blog. Uh, one of my next posts is actually putting together a list of early um, early America. Well, actually, what I call hashtag Black in vast po- uh, mm. hashtag Black in vast early America. Um, list of primary sources uh, that are digitized online to, to, to use this semester for teaching and for research purposes. And so in, so so Umbra search is on there along with you know this project I'll, I'll just link the um, the initial um, article because you know I, I think it's just going to be really good for people to use this because oftentimes people know about, you know, the civil rights era black folks in, you know, 20th century, maybe late 19th, 
But really, once you get behind the, you know, get before the Civil War, so much less is uh, is known about Black life. And so, as a early African Americanist, it is my charge to 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 help folks learn more and, and to have more. And so learning even more about your own family story is just 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 so remarkable and so, so glad that you're doing this work because I truly feel like you're called to this work. Yeah, I mean, it's, I find that it is for me just like, as you're sort of saying, it's very spirit lifting when I look through these materials because I am not an early Americanist, but this summer, even for example, I wanted to try out um, Scalar, which is a, digital publishing tool just so I could both get personal experience with it. And then I was thinking maybe faculty would be interested in using it this, you know, with all the new remote teaching. So I wanted to get some, some facility with it. And I decided, Oh, I'm going to make a site around one of our primary sources. And we had something that was called just this collection of slavery contracts, which is not a very Mm. formative title. And then I was like, well, I know about slavery somewhat. I can probably write this up. And as I'm looking through it, I discovered this is for me, at least speaking for early America, one of the most interesting collections of three contracts. They are all pre-1829 New York, so it's a Gradual Abolition Act material. Mm-hmm. One of them is a widow who is uh, selling an enslaved person, so we have like women's property law. One of them is um, Moses Judah, who was a the only, I think, Jewish member of the New York Abolitionist Society, and he was purchasing the indentiture of a 10-year-old child. That's very interesting. And then the very. last one was from New York State, and it was um, from New York City, and it was the department for um, the poor, the department they had set up to place previously enslaved, currently indentured indigent children. And it was a contract mm. they had written. And I was like, okay, well, now I'm learning a thousand new things that I never knew about this era, these types of materials, New York State, gradual evolution. And it's the sort of thing where it's like, that was so great to me. And I thought I was, it's funny. I thought maybe it wasn't that good of a site because I don't know that era. And then I had shared it with some early American professors and they were like, this is amazing. We're going to use this in our class, which is great because my fear was that they would be like this history. You are very close, but you are entirely wrong. Um, Right. But there's so much of that. And I think that, you know, the material is just sort of there and the benefit of doing a project like this slavery, abolition, emancipation and freedom, where we're doing a lot of material is sometimes things maybe don't seem as compelling as an individual object if you're not an expert on that. But then when you see Mm -hmm. them as a group, they become interesting. So we have like thousands of abolitionist pamphlets and any single one of them maybe is, depending on who you are, maybe isn't compelling. But when you have them all together and we have, I mean, it feels like we have almost everything I've ever read about as a key piece we have a copy of. So it's like the famous miscegenation hoax pamphlet that invented the term miscegenation. Um, Mm -hmm. we have one of those. We have the Absalom Jones and, um, Richard Allen letter about yellow fever. We have a copy of that one. Wow. That was it 1793. Yes. I believe ours is a reprint from later, but it would have been a reprint from later in the, or in the same era. ish. But so we just, you know, the things are all there and they're so, but when you put them together, then you have that ability to, even if you're not an expert, see the importance and see the conversations. Because I think I agree with you so much that um, sort of we, in the popular mindset, slavery is like, or even black history is like 1860, people were enslaved and then the war came. Right. <laughs> but and nobody we're all thinks free about like, those first couple of centuries. 
We just don't even mm -hmm. think about them. And so this material really opens that up. And then the more I'm learning even about that, it's opening up also the different ways in which black people express self-determination through these exam through these materials. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's so fascinating that you chose New York because um, one of the things that I'm interested in just generally as kind of like a uh, almost pretty much like my personal mission statement and professional mission statement is, you know, I spoke about Black Appalachia. And so I'm also writing my dissertation on Black women's freedom strategies in 19th century, uh, you know, the, in, in the 19th, 18th century, Black mid-Atlantic. Mm. And so looking at, you know, specifically the the states of and colonies of New Jersey, uh, Pennsylvania, specifically like the Philadelphia area, uh, Maryland and Delaware. And it's interesting to me because, you know, and, and it'll probably have to incorporate New York because of, you know, the, the networks of, um, of slave owning, but also the networks of communication from the enslaved. And so to me, what connects both Black Appalachia and this Mid-Atlantic project is when people think about quote unquote American slavery in their imaginary, it's primarily the antebellum South as if, you know, slavery did not occur in somewhere like New Jersey from the 16th, you know, from the, from the 1600s on until the civil war. And so, you know, or New York where it's, you know, was it July 4th of 1827. Mm -hmm. And so, so these are long stretches of time that, slavery and at least in the american imaginary doesn't touch and or in fact and so my mission statement is to say um all of our all, all all this land is is entangled in this mess for the simple fact that you know and this is all indigenous land anyway yeah. so you add you know the the you know african and uh, the enslavement of african and african american people to this discussion and so like for me, I, I'm so fascinated to, 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 to see the work that you're doing um, online because I think it's going to be really transformative for so many people. I mean, that's my goal. I, I always just think of how great it would be if something I have helped put online is, the, is something that spurs someone like you who is already doing great research and has these great ideas and just needs these pieces of evidence. Mm-hmm. Because mm -hmm. we have them. And I always just, you know, like there's, there are obviously, of course, so many historical silences and archival silences, but there's also a lot of things that just people don't know about that we do have examples of. Amen. Amen. So speaking of examples of, do you have a favorite single um, archival document that you ever handled that will be digitized in this collection? So for this particular collection, um, I don't know that I have a favorite. I'm never good at answering any sorts of favorite questions, even like favorite movies or things. But there is one I've been working <laughs> with lately that I is very interesting to me. And I've been doing a lot of research on it because I'm um, moderating a panel about this item. Uh, and it is called A Picture of Slavery for Youth. And it was by Jonathan Walker. So this is a juvenile abolitionist text. So a book for kids um, mm -hmm. to convince them to be anti-slavery. And it is from the 1840s. There's not a clear publication date, but it's probably post-1845. And Jonathan Walker was famous at that time um, because he was a white man who had moved to the South and he was very anti-slavery. And he sort of like pulled a little John Brown 
and helped or tried to assist seven enslaved black people to freedom by sailing them on a boat north. And then their boat was stopped and people were suspicious of this guy with these black people on the boat. And eventually he, Jonathan Walker ends up going to jail and um, they were so mad at him. And this is in Florida actually. And they were so mad at him for wanting to work with black people and free them that not only was he put in jail, they also branded his hand with two S's for slave stealer. So he became mm-hmm. a, like a public lecturer and he pub lectured with Frederick Douglass and stuff. And this book is so interesting to me because I was not previously particularly familiar with children's abolitionist literature at all. Um, and what makes it so interesting is that the way it is framed is directly to these children of saying, like you, and it's directly at Northern children because of the language, but it's just saying, it's not telling you like, oh, good people wouldn't do slavery, it's so cruel. It is in your face. He quotes um, runaway slave ads and he's saying, you know, would anyone who was a kind person do these things? And these ads are some of the more, you know, disturbing ones you'll read. And one, I just came, was reading it today, the book, and something that really stuck out to me is that one of the ads said, um, was an ad to purchase enslaved people, and it said, looking for a likely boy, and there was an asterisk by it. And at the bottom it said, in the South, black men are known as, are called boys. And mm. I was thinking the way that he set this book up, I mean, if you were a kid in the North, you would, if you were a white child in the North reading this, you would have to think that everyone in the South was an absolute monster. And I find that very interesting because that doesn't feel like how I have received sort of the ways in which people were talking to their kids about slavery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't know the distribution of the book, you know, maybe only some, not everyone read it, but he was a very popular public lecturer. So I assume that the book was at least sold um, places. And it just go. I mean, it is, it's very real. <laughs> There's, you mm-hmm. know, pages where he says, you know, and you, can you even believe that women are whipping in slaves? I have seen with my own eyes, a woman whip another woman. And just thinking if you're like little 19th century girl that, you know, what? but we're ladies. We never do such thing. And he gets into it in this, and there's illustrations. It's wild. I mean, and even one thing that I found really interesting, even the language is interesting because he, um, he does a lot to point out the hypocrisy of slave owners, um, self-professed Christianity. More than once he says, you know, I knew a minister and he sold a person for a horse. And I even saw him get sacraments at church. Can you believe it? And just sort of thinking of this, imagining the world in which these books exist and these materials exist is what's so interesting about primary sources. Because when you have a children's book, you already imagine, you know, is there a mother with her kids and she's reading this to them? Did she buy it at an anti-slavery bazaar? You know, do the kids like the book? Do they believe it? Maybe they think it's too outrageous. And all these sort of questions that come up that are, so compelling. And I think that's one of the things I always love about um, these primary sources and archival material is that even looking at them online, they give you the opportunity to really imagine the past as a lived place. It, it's it's fascinating. And it makes me think about, you know, the recent work. Um, there's a book that's about to come out um, later this year uh, from Dr. Crystal Webster down at um, UT San Antonio called Beyond the Boundaries of Childhood, African-American mm-hmm. Children in the Antebellum North, that I think is so, like, 
so connected to this, along with um, Dr. Cabrera uh, Baumgartner's uh, new book on on you know Black women uh, abolitionists and um, educational activism, right? So thinking about someone you know Boston based like Susan Paul, and and just just so this story is just so like so dope, like so 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 dope. And I actually interviewed um, a dude, a professor um, at the University of Houston named Dr. Uh, Matthew Clavin, who actually wrote a book about uh, slavery, uh, really the the Underground Railroad in effect of Pensacola, Mm. right? Where Jonathan Walker did this from. Yeah. And so it's just so fascinating, you know, not only how different interviews connect to each other, uh, but more to the point, how this, these kinds of histories are are things that like make you sit down and like, damn, what would a kid have thought, right? Back in in, in the nineteenth century, um, specifically with what we think about, you know, the mores of just like Victorian um, ideals, right? Uh, and and so just, you know, I'm I know that you don't like necessarily choosing faves here, but I am glad that you chose that one in particular. Yeah, I mean it's. Not that I don't like choosing favorites. I'm just very bad at it. <laughs> okay. Got you. There is a difference. There is a difference. I got you. I got you. <laughs> and so um, with that and actually moving um, in another direction for the conversation, for the time that we have here, um, you know, you know, uh, being an archivist, you know, it, it, it can obviously be tough, right? And then being a Black archivist and then being a Black woman archivist, right? So can you talk to us about what do you see as some of the biggest challenges that are faced by uh, by you and, and many of your colleagues in the archival profession? I think that the biggest challenges that we face beyond beyond the challenges that everyone faces in archives about like labor and getting paid appropriately and those sorts of things that are big universal problems. You know, we have a contingent labor situation that is mirroring the adjunctification of the teaching side. But beyond that, yeah, it's rough. But beyond that, I think that, you know, libraries is, the stats are usually somewhere between 84, 87% white. Um, It's mainly white women. And you end up, and I've heard this from almost everybody I know who's a black person who works in archives. You know, you end up either being tokenized, you end up being the, like, maybe the only black person some of these people ever interact with. and it's hard to do the work which you are connected to and which you are an expert on. And, you know, you can't separate your emotions from things because you're a human who's alive. But you are at that disadvantage of being the only one who actually has an emotional tie. Mm. You know, you are at that disadvantage of, you know, so you hear somebody make a little joke that's racist, uh, you know, like a smart people racist joke like people will do in life. Um, mm mm-hmm you are the old, you know, you have that sort of thing that anybody has when they are the only one or when they, even if there's more than one person, you feel like you have to be a representative of your people. Ooh, Lord, I have mercy. Mm-hmm. In that space of sort of, how do I make this work? But also this is my job. I'm not trying to get, you know, I can't, you know, you can make a big deal. You could be on Twitter or something and you can really call everybody out and that might be good. But if you need a job, then maybe then you're, you're not in trouble. And that sort of balancing act can really affect people's morale, you know, because I don't know a single black person in archives or libraries anywhere. I mean, any single where 
who doesn't have at least one story of extreme disrespect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that that's probably true of black people in all sorts of jobs. I think sometimes it maybe feels more hurtful because it's like, I thought we were all supposed to be educated people out here. And especially nowadays when it's like, you hear these disrespects that you receive in a world where everybody's like, oh, I can't wait until we do more diversity training, da 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 da. And you're like, great, I don't even know why you need that. You can't respect me at the job, or, you know. Right. And I think those are universal problems. And I think, yeah, so to me, I think that's the real issue is when people are in those situations, and a lot of Black archivists are, and they don't have the benefit of support from other colleagues locally, Black or white, or any, you know, any colleague who's actually a support of you. Um, there's a lot of really great uh, multiracial coalitions for people of color in libraries like um, We Hear, which is a people of color run um, sort of social media, but also just community that is fantastic. Mm -hmm. So there's really great internet sources for that. But I think still sometimes if you're in person and you're not lucky enough to have someone who is an ally to you, who also you know, knows the situation, it can be very uh, terrible for morale. And uh, Katrina Kendricks, I hope I pronounced her first name correctly, but she is a scholar of library information science and has done great work on morale for people of color in libraries. And a lot of that's what it comes down to is just these micro and macro aggressions and they pile up on people and they don't feel like they have any way out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I think you're so right. You know, sometimes these things pile up so much that it not only impedes your ability to do the work, it impedes your ability to even want to, you know, stay in your particular location um, because you have so much weight that is cast on you. And oftentimes you're not inculcated in a community full of not only like-minded, but likely like hued people as well, which can be in its own kind of psychic um, doldrum as well. And so, um, you know, to, to, to flip that to the other side, right? So we talked about challenges about the job. What are some of the most fulfilling characteristics of your job? So for me, most fulfilling is usually either, it's either something very solo or something very group oriented. So sometimes it's solo and it's that finding a, a material I didn't know about and having the opportunity to learn about it and just having a whole new world of some aspect of history opened up to me. That's always amazing. I think that's what everybody who works in special collections, that's always everybody's favorite thing. In terms of outward things, what I love the most is when I can help someone who tells me that for one reason or another, they had felt alienated by archives and special collections. And I hear that a lot from all sorts of black scholars um, at different levels, you know, black professors who you would think with their level of authority or prestige would just walk, could just own a place but they walk in and they're treated, they feel like they're treated disrespectfully or they, and, or they are, or they're just treated weird and they don't ever come back. And I've had multiple experiences at multiple institutions. This is definitely not a Harvard only problem where I've been able to sort of reintroduce someone or do a little extra work with them that opens the place back up as a site that they can, you know, think of as a home site for them. I had a recent experience um, with, Professor Sarah Lewis here at Harvard, who does all this amazing work with black photography history and mm-hmm. stunning person. And she was on the phone. It's the most serendipitous thing ever. We were talking on the phone about me um, doing a class visit for her, like a Zoom class visit. And she said just offhandedly as a joke, if you ever see, you know, 
anything on Ball's Panorama, let me know because that's something I'm looking for. And I had been at the office that day and had happened to open up one of these books I'm looking through of bound pamphlets. And I saw a full program for Ball's Panorama, which I knew nothing about. Wow. And I was like, I think actually we do have something. And she was, I was like, could you tell me more? And she said, well, it's this abolitionist panorama, but the actual images themselves, the, the whole panorama is lost, but we're doing this in reconstructive research and that it done. I was like, well, I don't know about that. But what I saw today was a program that had a scene by scene description of every image in the panorama. Goodness gracious. Which feels like the perfect thing if you don't have the actual thing itself. And she was right. like, I've never heard. What do you? And I was like, I can just go take pictures of it when I'm in the office next time and send them to you. No problem. But for wow. her research, that was like amazing. You know? And that sort of thing, every time something like that happens where someone's like, I'm kind of looking for something that I think is like this. And you have that light bulb and you're like, oh, this perfect example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that that is the best feeling. Because it's like, that's, that feels like why you do the work. Because a lot of the work you do in libraries, especially like digitization and stuff, you just have to assume it's having a positive outcome. Because I don't know everybody that looks at something I'm digitized and gets to use it for a paper. You know, you just have to assume that somebody's looking at it. So whenever you have those great reference experiences with someone, where, or even just introducing them to a tool that's very useful to them for digital research, um, I really love that. And I especially love it when I can talk to like an African-American student who has felt alienated from special collections because of the architecture or the interactions and just sort of chide them into giving it another chance if it will help them. You know, I talked to a student who was doing this really interesting research on black women and daguerreotypes and she wasn't coming to Houghton because she felt like Houghton wasn't her scene. And I was like, I don't know if it's your scene, but I do know that we have a ton of daguerreotypes and we also have like a fund that purchases daguerreotypes. So I'm saying, like, if that's what your deal is, maybe you do want to get to know these people, even if you're going to maybe not be best friends. Well, damn. As Gucci would say, goodness gracious. Well, sometimes, you know, and I think that that's and I don't I don't ever like to push that that hard because that is so individual. And I don't want to make anybody feel like they're selling out or doing something that's against what they would be comfortable with. Mm -hmm. But If I can, sometimes if I'm like, I mean, if you want to do this type of work. Let me help you figure out how you can work with people, even if this is not your scene. Amen to that. Doing the Lord's work. I love that. That That is just so important because, you know, I, you know, I think that's why it's always important to like, you know, hit up an archivist, hit up the people that helped you out because, you know, if you're writing a book or a dissertation, they might not see your acknowledgments there. But you know what, Will? An email. An email yeah. will help. And I would say everybody I know in archives, regardless of their expertise, their subject areas and stuff, everybody wants to be as helpful as possible. Like sometimes they, like I said, sometimes you just don't have the time because you're crushed, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, with all your responsibilities. But I don't know anybody who doesn't take like a lot of professional and personal pleasure in being like, okay, well, actually, if you were to look into this folder and I think this piece of paper is exactly what you need. Everybody loves that. Like for real, like I remember, um, let me see. So what it have been, uh, this time last year, around this time last year, um, the historical society of, uh, Pennsylvania, like folks took real, like when I tell you good care of me, great care of me. And, uh, I, shoot, I wish I had their name on me right now, but just like the amount of the amount of love that 
I got for the project that I was doing was really great. And not only the, the help, like in terms of like, yeah, you know, it's a good project, but also like the actual assistance, um, which as someone who's, you know, balling on a budget, um, you know, it is, it, it does help to have people that can, you know, help you out, right. In terms of, you know, pointing you in the right direction towards things, right. I had a great experience at, um, uh, university of Michigan's uh, Clements library when I was doing work on a uh, revolutionary America had a phenomenal experience with folks. And so, you know, I, I just try to pay it forward and just, you know, at the very least say, thank you. Um, because you can never, you never know. And if Lord knows 2020 showed us this, you never know what something like that can do for someone, um, as well. Yeah. That stuff has a lot of meaning for people, you know, and it is, I, yeah, I just, I, I do feel like it's tough because I speak out a lot. And so do others about a lot of the problems in our field, a lot of the racism, a lot of the microaggressions, and they are very real. And I never want to downplay that, but at the same time, I don't want to downplay the amount of people I know that are just doing their all to create outreach and especially in ways that maybe they get pushback for that people don't know about, you know? So a lot of people do amazing student focused work that everybody on the outside thinks is great, but you don't know that internally they're actually getting pushback for focusing on undergrads or something like that. So those thank yous go a long way for people. Amen to that. So y'all make sure, make sure you show love to the archivists out there in the library folks. So, um, and, and also in terms of helping people, um, do you have as a, as a seasoned saint in the game now, you know, you're a seasoned saint in the game. Um, do you have any tips for aspiring archivists, especially black folks in terms of, you know, getting started and also what to do if things are, you know, having a little trouble, you know, what, what tips and, and tricks do you have for the people? So my first tip for aspiring black archivists is to try to find the school that gives you the most money or that is the cheapest because you need to get that MLS. A lot, especially universities, a lot of them, they'll have that as just a requirement for hiring. Um, but I'm just going to tell you, don't go in, you know, personally speaking, I'm telling you as someone who went the opposite way, please don't go into student loan debt. <laughs> just yeah, Because um, we're all struggling out here. But beyond that, which I would be my advice for anyone doing anything, but especially library student people, is um, to try and... Really, one, build your self-esteem. Know that the work you want to do is as important as work anyone else is doing. Two, value that even though you are um, literally a minority in the library context, which is 87% white, you know, you have, because of that, you actually have expertise that other people you'll work with do not have, and that is valuable expertise. Whether that be your lived experience, whether that be your lived experience plus academic expertise, you know, you have something other people don't have, even if it's as simple as, you know, somebody wants to do local collecting of a community thing and nobody at your archive knows about what music young black people are listening to and they're trying to do something with teens. You might have the one thing that actually makes this actually accessible to people with just your knowledge. And two, um, in terms of the second part about what to do when things aren't going your way, and by your way, it means like when people are being oppressive to you at work, is yeah. you got to back up that earlier statement of really trying to build community, try to find mentors, and not being afraid to reach out to people. Um, as I said, we here is on Twitter, it's on Facebook, fantastic group. There's always um, early career people and students in there asking for tips and advice. And there's always people that I really respect and sometimes myself too, if I'm capable, 
reaching out to them and um, doing them whatever assistance and guidance they can do. Um, yeah, so just really, I think a lot of people that get into library work and archives work are naturally introverted or not, not gonna be the one who wants to do that type of outreach. But I think that it's really, and I'm the same way, everybody thinks that I'm an extrovert and that is a straightforward lie. It is just a skill I've developed. <laughs> um, but doing that work will really serve you because people will want to help you because we know that it can be tough. So if you are someone who is, you know, just like when you're a student, if you are willing to put in the work of doing your best and then asking for someone for help, they're going to want to help you. And I know, you know, I definitely as much as possible and whenever I can, if somebody asks me, like a grad student asks me to talk to them or they send me an email asking me about the job market or about my work, I, t I try to take the time to send them a good response or to do that talk with them because that stuff pays forward. And I've also, you know, I've, because of those experiences, I've sometimes been able to say, oh, for such and such project that someone asked me to do, I might know a library school student who's more qualified than me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're all busy. So I don't mind saying, you know, you asked somebody asked me if I wanted to do like a community oral history type of project. And I was like, I have never done any of that. But I know a grad student who does an amazing project in her community in uh, Queens, actually, I think. And she's fantastic. Why don't you talk to her? Here's her school email. There it is. So it's just making yourself, I think it's good to try and make yourself not anonymous, not in a way that's like clout chasing, but in a way mm -hmm. that helps you form that community that you might not be able to find locally. Although I will say, luckily for me also at Houghton, one of my favorite colleagues who has always helped me and is a genius person is also uh, a black man in libraries, which is one of the rarest things to be. And so, you know, keeping your eye open locally, too, to see maybe if they're not in your one section, but is there anybody around who you think you might be able to have a local ally with? Because having someone locally is always nice, too. Amen to that. Amen to that. And so thank you for that, because I think that a lot of people, you know, probably listen to the interview and like, you know, you know, I would love to maybe do that one day. Right. Or, you know, maybe I want to go this particular route. Um but might need a little push. And uh, hopefully uh, your, the entire interview, but especially this, uh, your, your, your recent answer here uh, will provide the needed push and, and assistance uh, to, to do that and to continue on in, in the struggle. And so um, as our final question here, uh, is, you know, obviously information and knowledge production um, really is a hallmark of, I think, democracy. And, and the understanding of, you know, the fits and tricks of, right, information. And you see that with like, you know, the QAnon conspiracy theories and such. And if I'm not mistaken, the, the woman who was actually murdered uh, or killed or rather um, on, the, on the Capitol was, was one of those people as well. So just like even just thinking about it, like at that particular level. And so can you discuss for us as, as, our, as our final question here? What, 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 I can't even talk now at the end. What role do you think archivists should play in the democratization of information and ultimately knowledge production? I think that we have a big responsibility to provide as much access as we can to materials and to prioritize, because as I said, you know, we are all overworked. We can't do everything. To prioritize the work we do to better serve the current social situations, whatever they may be. Um, so many of the misstatements we've seen and false information out there 
seem to come from, uh, seem to be potentially easily corrected by primary sources. You know, I think about all the people that have historically been like, the Civil War wasn't about slavery, that was states' rights, and da-da-da. But then if you look at the constitutions of any of those new Confederate states, they all talk about slavery being the most important thing to them. They say, I'm doing this because of slavery. Uh, Not all of them, but some of them distinctly say that. And sort of thinking about our roles, there's been a tradition that I think is, at this point, very contentious, and most people that I know, at least, they are against it, but it's still in the mix, of thinking that our job is to be neutral and to provide objective information that then scholars do the interpretive work on. And like I said earlier, you know, I come from an ethnomusicology background at Indiana that's in the School of Folklore. So I think a lot about subjectivity. And of course, for me, the idea that neutrality, that objectivity doesn't exist. I can't describe something objectively if I'm looking at a historical object because my subjectivity is what is writing the description. And I think that that sort of being willing to own that that is our responsibility and our power is important. So I think of that like with the work I'm doing, making accessible materials that directly relate to the history of things like, you know, speaking of that miscegenation pamphlet, the history of misinformation designed specifically to trick people into thinking that their worst fears, even if their worst fears are quite racist, but that those worst fears are coming true unless they do something that is violent against actually marginalized people. It's our responsibility to make those linkages, not necessarily in a way that is deeply interpretive, maybe that is up for the scholars, but it's sometimes the interpretation is light. I think um, our colleagues at the Beinecke, their social media team, they do, I don't know, they're like the kings of that. Every time there's a current event, I feel like Beinecke is posting something that is perfectly related. And they do those connections in a way, you know, they might post Mm -hmm. uh, the Federalist Papers today or something like that, where you're like, okay, I see what you're doing. And that is our truth. I think that, you know, that is a really important skill we have and ability we have is to share this information and to just put it in the context. Because sometimes, um, you know, a thing I say to people a lot when we're talking about making description more inclusive is that you don't necessarily have to put a trigger warning that says, you know, this might be harmful because it's racist. But if I describe to you what blackface minstrelsy is, I don't even necessarily have to say this is racist. Because when Mm -hmm. I'm telling you what it is, then you will know. If I say to you that someone dresses up like another person, exaggerates their speech, and pretends like they are an idiot or a criminal, you will know that that is negative towards the person being parodied. And I think that for me, a lot of that is sort of like being willing to realize that a lot of what we had historically said was being neutral and objective was actually us siding on the, uh, you know, the oppressor's side. Because if I'm saying, I don't want to call this planter a slave owner or an enslaver, because that sounds too negative. I'll just say planter or plantation owner. That's a choice. That's not objective. You're making a choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's our responsibility is to really evaluate our choices and see the ways in which, you know, even deciding I'm going to put time on this one set of papers versus this other set of papers. That is a choice we're making. And it says something about our priorities and about the information we are making available. And that is, I believe, the perfect way for us to wrap up this amazing discussion. 
with Houghton Library uh, Digital Collections Program Manager, Dorothy Berry, an amazing, amazing scholar and someone who's really out here doing the work, who's really out here showing us as scholars, right, how to really do the work, but also, right, as an archivist, she's also someone who is opening up space literally for folks who do the work like I do in African-American history to write our histories. Um, and, and as this digitization project comes literally from on our behinds at wherever we're living. And Lord knows if I can write it in my jammies, then Lord knows that's always a good thing. That's that's never a negative uh, fully in any way, of course. Uh, we want to be in a, a post-COVID world or, uh, at some point. Uh, but I will say that that learning about this uh, project uh, that you're that you're executing here is just it was one of the highlights of my year. Why? Because the article came out on my 28th birthday, July 30th of 1992 or of 2020, born in 1992. But you get the gist. Um, and and so uh, for for those uh, that might want to uh, ask you any questions, um, where can they find you? Sure. So if you have questions for me, you can email me. My email is Dorothy underscore Barry at Harvard.edu. And I'm a very fast email responder. Yes, she is. And I know that from personal experience. Um, and so, y'all, if you have enjoyed this episode, please, please, please rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And that's New Books in African American Studies on the New Books Network. And once again, folks, I am your host, Adam McNeil, signing off. Over and out.